Shack. Amazing. So we're in Revelation chapter 21, and we're starting at verse 9, and we're going to read all the way to verse 27. Okay. Um, are we there? People happy? Yeah? Great. Cool. Uh, starting at verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the 12 gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rods and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it was long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each gate was made of a single pearl, and the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. And I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And on no day will the gates ever be shut, for there will no, be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Quick, quick show of hands. Um, anybody go and see the Barbie movie? Yeah. yeah. Anybody go and see Oppenheimer? I think maybe it was a 15, so sorry. Um, uh, but Barbie was cool. Um, some, some, very, um, some very pink houses, a whole world of, of pink. And then like Ken and his um, guy friends like take over, don't they? Um, and then some very like... Um, like horse and um, western themed houses. This evening we've got a house that is uh, made of uh, gold 
and uh, all of those beautiful jewels that I just read out, um, some of which I don't think I've really read about anywhere else, uh, which is quite cool, isn't it? Um, with, a, with a street that is pure gold, as pure as glass. Really, really beautiful. Let's just remind ourselves um, of what's going on in Revelation. The guy who's writing all of this down is called John. God is giving John a vision of our glorious ending. We spoke last night, didn't we, about our good beginning and our glorious ending and how Jesus is the sign, is the proof, the one that we can hold on to uh, and be confident that we have had our, gl our glorious beginning is going to mirror our glorious ending. And so now, here, this is the, we're in the final throes of, of John's vision that God has given him, and the angel has taken him to a high place to show him God's dwelling place, where God and his people are going to come together. Now, um, anybody in the room like maths? Yeah, okay, cool, maybe half. Yeah, Jack, do you like maths? Yeah. Jack loves maths. Um, Jack, what do you do with maths? Um, what, what do you mean what do I do with it? Well, yeah, every day. Like, yeah, hooray! Jack's a maths teacher. I'm not a maths teacher. Um, in fact, I really hated maths at school. But I'm going to make us do some really simple maths this evening because it's going to show us some really, really cool stuff just to kick us off. We need to pay attention to the numbers that are here in Revelation chapter 21. So the angel measures the dwelling place of God. He gets out a gold measuring rod. How cool is that? And he finds that God's dwelling place is 12,000 stadia in length. Now, 12 in the Bible is a special number. And particularly in Revelation, it symbolizes fullness and completion and wholeness. So when we have 12,000 stadia here, it's a measurement that represents fullness and completion and perfection as 12. And then we've got 12,000. So it's like God saying 12, complete, full, and perfect times a thousand. It's kind of basic, but it, God is just saying this is going to be big. This is going to be cool. So it's 12,000 stadia in length, and then we find out that it is as wide and as high as it is long. So, according to Jack, it is a perfect cube. Is it a cube? If it's as, if it's as, if it's as long as it is wide as it's high. Okay, great. I'm just checking my maths, you know. I got a B at GCSE. I just, you know, just checking. It's good. Um, it's a perfect cube, so everything, the length, the width, and the height is all measuring 12,000 stadia, fullness, completion, and perfection times a thousand. The angel measures the wall, and it's 144 cubits thick. Again, square root, one of the things I took away from GCSE maths, um, and now are applying to the Bible. Um, and the square root of 144 is... Yeah, you're amazing. Thanks. Um, again, perfect, complete, whole. And the walls are made of pure gold and pure glass. This is, again, perfection, isn't it? And transparency and beauty. 
we've got perfection and completeness and fullness times by perfection and completion and wholeness. Can you see that God is showing us all the really good stuff and he's amplifying it. He's making it even bigger and even better. And this good and uh, beautiful and complete and perfect dwelling place is decorated with the 12 gems that represent the 12 tribes of God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament. Then there are 12 gates. They're made of a single, they're made of a single pearl. Again, purity and perfection. And the city was as, of gold as pure as transparent glass. And inside there's no sun and there's no moon because it's God himself, God's very own glory, which is lying this place up. The perfection and the completeness of this place is a direct reflection of God's perfection and of God's uh, completeness, of God's fullness and he is the one it's all radiating from and so we've got this big shining city how do we know then again how do we know how can we have proof that this is the future that we are heading for well, what did we say last night? That Jesus is the one who confirms it. Jesus is the one who holds between our good beginning and our glorious ending. So let's look at what Jesus says in John chapter 14. He says, my father's house has many rooms. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you might be where I am. If we look at that verse in isolation, it would be really, really easy for us to think that Jesus is talking about like God's great big mansion in the sky, kind of like a top-end uh, hotel of a really plush golf course and jacuzzis and ice cream machines or whatever you, whatever you like, whatever you think is like the, the coolest thing or the, um, the best. If we read this verse in isolation, that's where we go, isn't it? But if we break it down, the most important thing that Jesus is telling us about God's house, about God's dwelling place, is that it is all about God. It's all about him. It is him, it's his perfection and his glory that is lighting this place up. Thomas, as we read down John 14, Thomas says, he's a bit confused. You've got a bit of a pattern here with Thomas. Um, he's a bit confused. He says, Lord, how can we know where you're going? Why won't you show us? How can we get there? Aren't we asking that same question tonight? If, this, if, this, uh, if our glorious ending is so beautiful and so perfect and so whole, Jesus, how can we get there too? How can we be with you? And Jesus replies, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so according to Jesus, the way that we reach our glorious ending with God, where we dwell with the Father forever, is through Jesus. Hang on a second. <clears throat> Why can't we get there on our own? What's the problem? How come... We need Jesus. We've got a problem, haven't we? It's a big problem. 
We read last night about our good beginning, that God has set us up. He's made us to be perfect, to be beautiful like him, to reflect his beauty. Adam and Eve, they lived in God's presence in the garden. And so why now do we have Jesus saying that he is going to have to go ahead of us and prepare this place, kind of like we've been kicked out? The story of creation is hijacked, isn't it, by the introduction of evil into the world. When Adam and Eve rebel against God, God says, do not eat from the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. And they take the apple under the serpent's advice. And they rebel against God's good plans and good rules. He told them not to go near it, and they choose it. Anyway, evil introduces sin into the world, and Adam and Eve get kicked out of Eden. God has no place for them if they are not going to live in relationship with him. God has no place for them if they are not going to live in relationship with him. And so violence enters the story, and suffering enters the story, and death enters the story, creating hell on earth. And not only do Adam and Eve get chucked out of, outside of the garden, infected by evil and sin, but now even Eden itself separates. So here's my first prop. Um, this might be slightly difficult with... Actually, Jack, could you... Yeah, thanks. So in Eden... We have a wonderful, uh, we, we, have, we have heaven, basically, in Eden, don't we? It's perfect, it's beautiful, as God has created it, created it. But as sin and death enters the world, Eden separates, and we end up now with heaven, which is God's dwelling place, and earth, which is human's dwelling place, separate. They're separated by sin. So not only is evil um, introduced into the world and it makes the humans' lives a misery, but we've got like a cosmic change happening here, that the heavens and the earth are separated. This is really serious stuff. It's not just a problem for the humans. It's not just a bit annoying that they have to work harder and uh, they now seem to fight and can't seem to um, make sense of the world, but there's a cosmic shift going on. Thanks so much, Jack. We have what um, Pete Hughes calls decreation. So we've started with creation. Um, and, and if it's helpful to do the colors, then, then uh, memorize the colors as well. Creation in green, and then decreation where evil and sin enter the world. You've got the split of the green, the yellow and the blue. The yellow for heaven and the blue for earth. And what we're going to find in recreation eventually is the two come back together. Spoiler alerts. The only hope for God's kingdom perfection of heaven and earth coming back together again is that evil must be cast out. It must be removed. The hell that has been unleashed needs to be removed. There needs to be an end to the violence and the suffering and the death. 
So a quick uh, definition then, just to um, apply to our context and our thinking this evening. Um, hell exists where the will of the evil one is done. Hell exists where the will of the evil one is done. Back in Eden, listening to the snake, listening to the serpent and surrendering, choosing uh, the, e- the will of the evil one was a deadly decision. It unleashed the forces of evil into the world. So when Jesus comes to earth to sort things out, it's not a surprise to us that he has some things to say about evil and about sin, the manifestations of evil in our own hearts, in our own lives. So I'm going to take us to Matthew chapter 5. So um, grab your Bible again. Matthew is um, the first book in the New Testament. It's an, uh, an eyewitness account of Jesus' life. I'll give you a bit of time to find that. Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus' clearest teaching, um, the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us so much valuable stuff in here. Um, So we're going to have a look at that. So Matthew chapter 5. Give me a smile when you found it. Well done. Oh, it's lovely to see your smiling faces. Yeah. If the person next to you is struggling to find it, why don't you give them a hand? Matthew chapter 5. Oh, I should find it as well, shouldn't I? Good one, Thea. No, gone too far. Okay. How are we doing? People good? Matthew chapter 5. Just a little bit longer. Yeah, great, great way to find some of these books is to use the contents page at the front. It's really helpfully there. Brilliant. Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 5. If you haven't found it, maybe look over the shoulder of uh, the person sitting next to you. We're in verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, Raka, is answerable to the courts, and anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow, Jesus doesn't hang around, does he? He declares that he's come not to get rid of the rules from the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. Jesus hasn't come to get rid of them. He's come to fulfill them and to raise the bar. Someone wrote a great book called Raise the Bar. That'll be a quiz question one day, won't it? Jesus is referring to the guidelines, the Ten Commandments that God's people were given. And then he gives them a signpost. 
He raises the bar to what life in God's future is going to be like. And these rules, the Ten Commandments, set out the parameters for God's people. But they set out guidelines for their external behavior. Those rules really were kind of powerless to transform people's hearts or their minds. And Jesus comes because he wants to transform hearts and minds. He wants to go that bit further with well than the law. He uses specifics here in the passage we've just written, read. Murder is the external action. That's the thing that the Ten Commandments told us not to do. Do not murder. But Jesus says murder is motivated by anger. The Greek word points to not just any anger, but anger that brews, that is long-held, that sours, that rumbles under the surface, that is long-held and pent up, like nursing a grudge. Anger, Jesus says, if it's not dealt with, can eventually lead to murder. He's quite serious, isn't he? We might think, well, Jesus, you're going to be over the top here. But you can, kind of, you can kind of follow him, can't you? If these things are allowed to sour and rumble and boil in our hearts, they can lead to even greater things. So here, we've got it written out. Anger can lead to murder. Murder leads to death. And death, Jesus says, is punishable by hell. It's cause and effect. What starts with a choice just to remain angry ends in hell. It's a direct rebellion to God's good um, and perfect creation. This isn't just about the future, is it, really? It's also a warning for now. Something totally destructive can be unleashed in the present if it's not immediately dealt with. And then as we, if we were to keep reading, Jesus turns to another thing in the same way. He talks about lust, which we understand as um, looking at another guy or a girl um, in a way that objectifies them, in a way that takes um, them for granted or is demeaning. The rules of the Old Testament told God's people not to commit adultery, not to have affairs. But Jesus raises the stakes, doesn't he? And he, he highlights that the, the outward action of adultery begins with an unhealthy desire inside our hearts. And that sets in motion a set of dominoes. You know when you line up dominoes all in a, all in a line and you push the first one and then they all go. And it's like a series. Just pushing the first one leads to them all falling down. A moment then for you to pause and talk to the person next to you. Have you ever found something in your life that seems really small, but it's had a huge influence? Have you ever had something in your life that's really small, but it's had a huge influence? You've got one minute. One, two, three, go.
Okay, 10 seconds left. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's come back together. Okay, anybody had anything small in their life that's had a massive influence? Yes. Your sister. Um, how small is she? Okay, so height small. Okay, but she, and what's the influence that she has? A lot of things. Okay, decision making, family, yeah. Annoying? Yeah, okay. Sad times, she'll get better. Um, anyone else? A really small thing that's had a big impact. What about a sports injury? Anybody had a sports injury? Just a little tear or a little niggle that then gets massive. Jack, did you have your hand up? A blister, yeah, great. They're so uncomfortable, aren't they? Or on the same vein, like a mosquito bite. Oh, they're grim, aren't they? I don't know if it's because I'm like really, um, I'm, maybe I'm really tasty to mosquitoes, I don't know, but I always get bitten by mosquitoes and they're so itchy. Something small that has such a big influence. A couple of years ago, I was traveling um, in East Africa, and I cracked out a packet of custard creams. And it was a long time since breakfast. I was really, really hungry, and so I just went for it. And you know a custard cream? It's not very big, is it? It's kind of small. And so I just absolutely went to town. And the first three or four, I just went for it, just eating them all, all, in, whole, all in one. Very nice. Great. Brilliant. On my fifth custard cream, started to slow down. I thought, hmm getting a bit full now, probably shouldn't eat too many custard creams. Anyway, so this fifth one, I took uh, a bite and broke it in half, and then, um, you know, just munching away on my first, the first half, holding the second half in my hand, and what did I see out of the corner of my eye? Really gross, a maggot, yay! Hanging out in the middle of my custard cream. Now, what was really good news about this was that it was a whole maggot and not half a maggot, because where's the other half gone would already be in my tummy. But what about all those other custard creams I'd already eaten? Um, what, was, what was in there? Luckily, um, I wasn't poorly, and I think I caught the maggot. James, who is another writer in the New Testament, tells us that even the smallest thing, the smallest part of the body, he's talking about the tongue, can have the most incredible destructive power. It's, uh, the reference is James 3 verse 5. He says, consider what a great forest fire is set, what a great forest is set on fire by a single tiny spark. So what starts as a spark, a spark of anger or a spark of lust or a spark of um, selfishness can eventually, if it's left unchecked, undealt with, destroy the entire forest. I'm sure uh, like me, you've seen over this summer the really, really intense forest fires that have just like raged, haven't they, all over Europe and America and also Hawaii um, and probably sh sh other places as well that haven't had news coverage. The scale of these forest fires is terrifying, isn't it? It's terrifying. People having to flee their holiday destinations, fleeing their homes, leaving all their stuff. Everything's been destroyed. It's terrifying because fire is almost uncontrollable. 
when it's huge, it's, it's crazy, it's out of control. And Jesus is saying that same thing in the Bible, that if the sparks of sin in our lives are left unchecked and undealt with, they will create huge fires in our worlds. Evil and sin gains entrance into God's good world through us. We are the agents of destruction. We are the agents of the architects of demolition. God is not the architect of hell. The creator of its soul-destroying power is us. We are. We unleash the wildfire flame into God's good worlds and we as followers of Jesus we have a social responsibility don't we to deal with the wildfires of injustice that rage through our worlds but first we have to recognize and we have to deal with the sparks that are within us it's so easy for us to focus on the problems that are out there and fail to recognize the source of the fire is the spark in yours and my hearts too. The sparks of sin are our rebellion against God, where we choose to go our own way, we choose to go the world's way, and not to honor the living God. This is why Jesus' central message, if we read anything about Jesus' life, his central message is repent, which means turn around, change, believe, turn to God and follow him, follow his good purposes. Let him write your story. Because those evil things that we do and that dwell and fester in our hearts have no place in God's perfect and pure and whole future. They have no place in God's dwelling. Those sparks that are in our hearts need to be snuffed out. Sin that leads to the wildfire needs to be addressed and it needs to be banished. I wonder if you ever find yourself wondering, like I do, if God is real, why doesn't he end suffering? Why does he not intervene in a war? Why does he not reverse a climate disaster? What is it with God sitting back and watching And why is he so okay to watch all this stuff happen in our worlds? The good news, folks, is he is absolutely not okay with any of it. He is absolutely not okay with the fire of evil that is raging in this world. And he is not going to sit back and watch forever. There will be a very real time when God steps in and sorts out all the terrible and heartbreaking and hideous and unspeakable mess 
of evil and roots it out once and for all. And in fact, as we look at the Old Testament prophets, God's people were asking the exact same question as I've just put to us there. God's people asked the prophet Amos in the Old Testament what God was doing. They were sick of being ruled by foreign powers who took advantage of them, who made their lives a misery, who treated them badly. And they were crying out to Amos, why won't God come and sort all this mess out? Why won't God come through for us? After all, we are his people. Why won't he show up for us? And Amos says to them, well, folks, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that a day is coming when God will bring justice and judgment on those who have hurt you. And he, God, the sovereign of the worlds, will vindicate you, will prove you right. But Amos says, a warning, you don't really want that, do you? Because you know that what else that will bring, what else will come with that? And that is the bad news. It will bring God's judgment on you too. And he shows them how they have also been acting unjustly. They've been neglecting the poor and the widows in their community. They too have not lived up to God's standards. They've not lived up to the good purposes that God gave them in the good beginning in creation. And so it's kind of like a catch-22, isn't it? You and I, we really want there to be judgment for the world and for humanity and for the terrible, evil things that happen now and have happened in history and will happen in the days and weeks to come. We want there to be judgment for the world because that gives meaning and hope and purpose to our good and to our actions. But the moment my life and your life is put under the magnifying glass... We are in trouble too. As Jesus is teaching us back in Matthew 5, we read that passage about um, adultery and anger. As Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, he uses the word hell, doesn't he? It's quite jarring to us. We think, oh, I thought that was just from culture, Lord. But no, it's in the Bible and it makes us feel awkward. But there's depth to Jesus's teaching because the word he uses, you know I love my Greek, um, the word he uses is Gehenna. And Gehenna isn't just an idea or a concept, but Gehenna was a place. So imagine with me a city, the city of Jerusalem. It's built on a hill and all around the city of Jerusalem is a big wall. And Gehenna is the valley to the right of the city of Jerusalem. And when Jesus is teaching back in Matthew 5, that valley is the rubbish dump. It's the place where everyone takes their garbage, their rotten food, their sewage, and it absolutely stinks. 
It is a horrible, horrible place. And most importantly, it is outside of the city. Jesus' teachings, full of meaning, again. These sparks of sin, which he's talking about in Matthew 5, adultery and lust, our sinful desires, belong outside of God's city. They do not belong in his perfection and in his purity. Jerusalem was was created to be God's city, to be a place of shalom, of peace, and of justice. And Jesus here is, is beginning to push back those powers of darkness, isn't it? And to claim, um, claim God's, uh, God's power over evil, over anything that violates his peace and his justice and his perfection. And so the future promise of Jesus then is a day when the flames of evil will be cast out of God's dwelling place for good. And anything that violates God's peace or his justice will have no access. It's good news, isn't it, if we care about justice, and it's good news if we care about ending poverty, and it's good news if we hate genocide and human trafficking. But those who want God's peace and justice but don't want judgment fail to realize that evil must be dealt with before there can be restoration, before heaven and earth can come back together. Evil and sin has to be dealt with. So, where does that leave us tonight? It's quite a lot, isn't it? It's quite heavy. Where does that leave you and me tonight? I think it means that we have to, you and I have to pay attention to those sparks that are in our hearts those desires that we know are just not part of God's good purposes and good creation, that do not reflect his glory and his goodness and his perfection. We've got to pay attention to those sparks of sin that are in our lives. And we have to ask Jesus to help us sort them out. I've got one final illustration have a look at uh, this rope. I want you to imagine with me then that this rope is like our lives. And this first bit here, this little black bit you can see, this is your life on earth. This is your life and my life on earth. This is what it looks like, just this black bit here. And the rest of the rope that may as well be going out of the door and into eternity, we might say, is our existence after this life. After this life on earth, we have eternity somewhere else. 
And so I find it crazy that you and I, and I count myself in this as well, this isn't just about you, this is about me as well, I find it crazy that you and I make so many decisions about this tiny part of our existence. This tiny moment that is here when we've got all of the rest of this going on and on and on for millions and millions of years, forever, with God. It blows my mind that we work so hard for this tiny bit here. And we uh, pay attention to all the things that we want right now. And we say that we're going to save, save, save. We're going to do, we're going to go and do this and be a little bit selfish here so that then in this next part just here, it might be quite good. But we forget, don't we, that we've got all of this. And the Bible tells us that the decisions that we make here And the way that we choose to live in this tiny bit determines how we will live in this next bit. We've got one chance for this life on earth. And it could end at any second for any of us. One chance and then comes eternity. And so following Jesus and walking in his footsteps, paying attention to what he values, seeking his kingdom, it might seem stupid today because your friends are doing something else, they're living for something else, living for themselves, making different choices from you. But following Jesus and getting to know him better and seeking his will for your life, letting him write your story, the good beginning into the glorious ending, is going to determine that you live the rest of your life with him forever. The way people live in this world is crazy. If you haven't realized it yet, as you uh, grow up and move into the world of work or into um, uh, long-standing relationships, or whatever it is, as you, as you grow and mature in this life, you will realize that this world is crazy. The things that people do and the things that people choose in this world are, are just shocking, honestly. That they would choose, they would make decisions just for this tiny, tiny bit and choose to ignore all of this. The beautiful, beautiful, glorious ending forever and ever and eternity with Jesus. And so even though it's tempting down here to live like the world, to make choices like everyone else, to live in ways that rebel and reject God's good and perfect way for us, that, my friends, is a wise decision. With this perspective, it is a wise decision to live for Jesus. If we set our eyes on the dwelling place, on the house of God, which will reign forever and ever, where God will be king, 
where goodness and justice will reign, where his perfection and his goodness and his grace will be, where we'll be like Eden restored, our good beginning made glorious. If we set our eyes on that dwelling place with God, we will not be disappointed. We will not be disappointed. Evil will not exist any longer. We will be safe in God's peace. His justice will reign. And you and I will be in God's presence forever. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to pray. Perhaps the band would like to come up. Give yourself a bit of a shake as you stand up. Shake your ankles out. Shake your shoulders out. Maybe just lift your arms up.